Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the podcast. With me this week, I have John Lees. John is the writer and creator of the hit series, And Then, Emily Was Gone, Sink, Mountainhead, and Hotel. I've been a huge fan of John's for a really long time now, and so it was really just amazing that I was able to sit down and chat with him about all things story and about his process, how he goes about kind of story creation to outlines to getting um, words on the page. It was really just a, a master class in writing, and I hope everyone that listens to this enjoys. But before we get to our interview, I just want to let everyone know that the second issue of my Lovecraftian Noir horror series, Forgotten Hymns, is now live on Kickstarter. If you are into horror, Lovecraft, or just good old-fashioned mysteries, Forgotten Hymns is definitely for you. So once the interview is over with John Lees, head on over to Kickstarter and check out Forgotten Hymns. All right, John, how are you today? Thank you so much uh, for joining me for this episode of the podcast. You know, as a, a fan of yours, I've been following you since uh, since uh, 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 then Emily was gone uh, and just watching your, your career from that to Sink to Mountainhead and then um, uh, Hotel. It's just been really awesome to kind of follow your career. And I, I'm just really honored that you're uh, here today. So thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for the invitation. Uh, we appreciate the fact that you've been reading my stuff. It's always good to know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's read. yeah, you know, uh, then Emily w- was gone. I- I'm saying it right. Then Emily was gone. Yeah. Uh, and then Emily was gone. And then, yeah. yeah. And then Emily was gone. The The premise was just, just drew me in immediately. This guy who sees monsters and he has to find a girl who was taken by one of the monsters. It was just... It was just really awesome, and uh, I, yeah. that was like a fun project to work on. Um, like, obviously, like the title, like, is a bit of a pain. Like, I think it's always difficult to start on any comic with the word "and" because I've learned, like, when you're listing like your your credits, and then you have to say something, 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 and and then Emily was gone. Like, and you're like, oh. but, um, that was like an Ian Laurie because Ian Laurie gives it great titles, and some of those things you say that title, and instantly like evokes like you know feelings. Whole, the whole genesis of that basically came out of mainly me wanting to work with Ian Laurie, who I think is a genius and is like a hero of the Scottish independence scene. Um, and I wanted to just write something tailored to his unique style. And like he like wanted to do something like in the vein of like Twin Peaks or David Lynch or a little bit of Hammer Horror. And we kind of batted forth in ideas. And like, yeah, I'm really proud of that comic still. Like, you know, I think it's what came out in 2014. So that's oh, seven years ago. And people still say, um, oh, yeah, um, I love that comic. I was actually talking to a young creator who's a really talented creator uh, here in uh, Scotland. I wouldn't name them to embarrass them, you know, but um, they, they actually said to me that they first decided they wanted to start making comics after reading and then Emily was gone. And it's great when you hear stuff like that. Like, you know, that's really kind of the kind of thing that really makes, you know, like my heart grow a lot and my head grow a lot as well yeah it's gotta it's gotta feel good right that someone someone's reading your work and then gets inspired to do it themselves like that has to be almost like a full circle feeling for you yeah i mean one of the main things like um when i think about like why you know i write or why i create comics one of the big things that jumps out at me is like i want to make other people feel the way that I felt when I read like the big formative comics for me, you know, that's what I want to try and pass forward, you know. So 
if I can make people do that, that's great. Although probably the flip side of it is maybe it's just folk read, like, you know, my hacky writing and thought, you know, if he can do it, anyone can do it. So I might as well have a go. <laughs> well, I, I will tell you, I, I, you know, as a fan of yours, I, I thoroughly enjoy it. And I've, I've definitely seen, you know, um, you know, an evolution in your work and it just, I feel like it just keeps getting better. And one thing we, we talked about this before we started was, uh, I'm a part of Tyler James comics launch course. And in uh, his mastermind, uh, portion of it, you have a, uh, a masterclass on the problem with first issues. And I, I really enjoyed it when I'm, uh, I learned so much just from that masterclass and listening to you talk about, um, how most first issues stop at the turning point and that it needs yeah. to like, there needs to be a second, like a little bit more to that first issue. Yeah. Otherwise, like, like there's no, there's no reason to return for issue two. For me, that's like a big pitfall, like a lot and good comics as well, not just like, you know, bad comics. Some, some good comics I've read fall into this same trap, which is the first issue is essentially the solicit. Like you read like, you know, the solicit text, you know, for the first issue and you know, or for the, the series premise and interview and like the whole first issue is just the process of getting to that. Um, like so for from for Mountainhead, for example, like spoiler alert if you've not read Mountainhead, like for me, like that's all built on a big twist, but it's like a kid and his dad who are kind of living this nomadic existence, like you no know, burgling house to survive, living off the grid. And then like they eventually get caught by the police. And the main character, this teenage kid, Abraham, finds out that this guy that he thought was his dad isn't his dad, that he was actually kidnapped as a child, and he's sent back to live with his real family. And it would be very easy to just, like, have ended the first issue with that reveal. But then I feel like it would have been like, you're not giving people, like, enough value. So I wanted to add that a little bit extra and show a little bit of the town, do a little bit more. And for me, like, I think that's important. Um, I just think, in general, like, that... It's always hard to, uh, first issues are hard because I think, like, it's one thing to do a good first issue, like, you know, but can you do, like, the good first installment of a full series? Like, so whenever I'm talking about, like, when I've, I've done, like, rankings of, like, my top 10 comics um, for the past decade. I've done, like, little blogs about it. And as a rule of thumb, like, I, no comic that's had, like, if it's an ongoing series or a mini no comic that's had less than three issues is eligible because I think like it's easy to do a first issue, but you don't really know how a story's going to pan out until you've seen like a few chapters like laid out. So I definitely think that um, first chapter is one thing, but how do you take it forward from there? Yeah, and I, I, I really saw you know in not only that em, the, uh, and then Emily's gone and in uh, Mountainhead, there's definitely we'll just call it Emily and how that yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I don't know why that's so hard for me to say, but uh, I definitely saw that that first issue and, and the problems with the first issue and how you kind of uh, boiled that into the first issue and how how it hooked the readers on for the second and so on and so forth. And that's a lot different than uh, Sink and Hotel, which are kind of like these self-contained like stories, yeah. yeah, like one shots in a big universe. I don't like uh how did that come about because those are like really like they, when you read them all together it makes it's like one large story but their own like little stories in between right their own um well, kind of anthology stories for that is kind of like there's it's like a multiple reasons for that like you know first off um i'm just a sucker for like anthologies and like you know the whole idea of like especially in the uk there's a real rich tradition of like anthology tv shows 
like you have like inside number nine and black mirror and like these ideas of like, these little like self-contained like dun 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 but then also like particularly in the uk there's this guy called jimmy mcgovern who's like a tv a really famous tv writer who does stuff like the street um like and accused and um various shows and that is like the, the kind of setup of that is the whole idea of like each episode is its own standalone story but they're part of like a bigger story where like you know maybe someone who's the main character in like one like episode will pop up like walking down the street in the next episode like how are you doing you know like you know you'll see them looking kind of sad because of what happened in like their episode and like and i like that i just love that idea of like you know little snippets of a larger whole it's like a grand map and like you're getting little like you know insects and bits and pieces and also like from a comic standpoint i was trying to get over again go back to the whole first issue thing i was trying to go for this thing where a first issue of a comic is always like, you know, a hot seller. Everyone jumps on board. Then the sales immediately start going do, 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 do after that. And part of the problem is if someone doesn't buy the first issue, they go, well, I don't know the story now. So I guess I just won't pick up anymore or I'll wait for the trade. So I wanted to create this idea where every issue, you know, like someone could jump on board because every issue is its own story. So for example, let's say I've been hearing, let's say I'm a reader who's been hearing about Sync and thinking, hey, this book's really good you know, but I'd never get into trying it. Um, and then I'm in the comic shop and I see, like, the cover for, like, Sync issue 10. Um, and I go, oh, that looks interesting. And I can pick that up and I can read it and get a full story and full value out of it. You know, it's totally self-contained. And you'll get little glimpses of the wider world in it, you know, but you've got full value of that comic. But then you'll go, I mean, now I can go back and read the rest of the series because I've read this and I know I like it. Um, so that was the whole idea. And the hotel, somewhere like, you know, with hotel, it's a little bit different because like with hotel, it was now a limited time frame in terms of like solving a single weekend. For that, I was playing the whole Rashomon trick of like showing the same event from a different perspective over and over, which is like a total nightmare to... <laughs> try and plan like I was like you know that kind of thing like in Always Sunny in Philadelphia where it's like Charlie Day and he's like this thing on the screen like you know that's what I felt like kind of laying out the chronology like you know for that but yeah you know, for I, me, like I just yeah. think and especially when you're doing like you know I think it's a fun challenge because like obviously um when you do a series you have a real luxury of like slowly building up character but you don't have a single issue it's a real challenge to establish characters do a full arc have a resolution get in get out I think it's a real challenge. It's quite satisfying when you can pull it off. And also, when you're writing in the genre of like horror and thriller, it adds an extra degree of tension because like there's no guarantee that the main character is going to live past the end of the issue because it's like a standalone story. So that adds a whole extra dimension to it as well. Yeah, I uh, I loved in Hotel. Uh, I read the you know after reading the first issue, I loved the part where uh, they're in the hotel and they they talk to the the neighbors or whatever. Like next door is like hitting on her or whatever, and then the wife shows up, <laughs> and like you it, like you reading the first issue, you don't know what's going to happen. Spoiler alerts, by the way, uh, you don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, you know, you're not but not reading Hotel. Available from all good comic shops. <laughs> and. Uh, then all then in, in issue two you realize oh that was that's the main story in issue two and then you do such yeah. a good job like it was it was really creative and I, I love the way you did it and you, you said it was really hard to kind of piece all those those little yeah. things together like how did you go about kind of outlining it or or putting that jigsaw well, actually, together like I drew a big like essentially for um the four issues I just drew like a big you know I had a big piece of paper laid out and I drew like you know so I had it all physically laid out I drew like this big line and wrote like you know Friday Saturday Sunday 
Um, I wrote all the big, the key markers like the eclipse happens in this moment, um, and like all the things that were kind of set in stone. And I had this big line, and I started looking. Okay, within this timeline, what time does Alice check into room one? What time does like this happen to her? Then like what time do does like Father Villa Lobos check into room four? You know, does that overlap with this? You know, when did Render's room three get occupied? And I kind of laid it all out and I started thinking how much time do I need for like this to happen before they get to this point? And I kind of played around with it a bit and figured the various points where the characters interact, like how long would this person have to have been here to be in place for like that thing happening? And I just kind of drew it all out. I mean, I had it all visualized in my head and I could see it. That meant that every time I was writing like issue one, I knew like what was going on in room two, room three, and room four at that time. Like, even if it's not something that you saw on the page, I knew in my head what was happening. So that made it easier. Yeah, that that sounds like really like laid out and fleshed out. Now, is that something that you normally do with your outlines? Like, draw it out like yeah, that? Yeah, I'm very like, no, I'm very organized. I mean, I very rarely went loosey goosey. I think I famously said like the only time I was totally free flowing was I think Emily was gone issue one. I just wrote that totally on the fly, literally not knowing what was going to happen next page by page. I just kind of wrote, like, you know, let's see where it was going to go. And then after I finished the first issue, I started planning it all out. But other than that, like, I'm really kind of organised. I'm really kind of, like, that helps me write a lot better. I'm I'm the kind of person who will, um, when I start a series, I'll go, how many issues is this going to be? Five issues. And I'll write a kind of bullet-pointed list. One, two, three, four, five. And I'll write in one line, what happens in each issue. Like, this is the issue where this character dies. This is the issue where we learn this character's backstory. Um, and that really helps me establish every issue as its own identity. Like, every issue is justifying its existence rather than being filler. If I can write in one line, like, this is what happens in that issue. So once I've done that, I then go into, like, writing issue one. Issue one, I'll then, like, first, I'll write in door-pointed list every scene that's going to happen in that issue. Um, and then I'll put in little brackets after each and how many pages roughly I think it's going to take. Like, so, um, I don't know, Mr. Dig um, helps the kids fight the clowns or something. Um, and I'll, five pages. <laughs> um, and I'll write that all out and work it all out in my head. And then, then I'll, get, I'll go more detailed and do a page plan. But let's say I have 22 pages. I'll write a numbered list, one through 22. And again, similar to what before, I'll write in one line everything that happens in each page. So every page justifies its existence. If at any point in my plan, I have like page seven, um, Kieran and Louise are talking, then page eight, Kieran, Kieran and Louise continue to talk. It's like, well, that, need, that needs to get chucked out because like every, like every page has to be achieving something. Whether it's like something happening in plot or some revelation about character or some important beat you want to get past, like I want to make sure every page has value because every page is like a day out of the artist's life to draw. So I'm not going to like, you know, like, you know, have them like spend that day doing something that's just like filling space. All has to have value. So that's the kind of mindset I take. And then from there, I go into like planning panels and panel breakdowns and so on and so forth. So it's all very structured. That's that sounds that's really awesome. Like to hear and just to just to hear how you how you break it down. Now, when you're um, when you're doing the anthology version of this, how does how does that planning structure different than say a series like mountain to be honest it's actually very similar because it's the same basic idea like whether it's like a series like mountainhead where you're writing down like this happens this happens this happens if anything's a bit easier when you're doing an anthology format because like you're just writing down this is the chapter with this character this is this this guy's story you're writing a full story in a single line like you know so basically it's the same idea 
Yeah, that's that's awesome. So one thing I, I definitely wanted to to pick your brain about was just horror in general, general and like the genre yeah. itself. Because I see the thing I talk about. Yeah, I yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, you know, one thing I, I think you really do a nice job of in all of your works is you really have an emotional impact with the characters as they go through all of that horror stuff. Now, is that something that's intentional that you're doing or is that something that kind of, you're kind of just doing as, cause like it just feels natural as you write. Like, um, like so, go on. I'm sorry. No, no, I'll let you go first. Sorry, I thought you were finished your sentence. Yeah. Yeah. Sentence. No, no, I, I just, you know, I, I definitely see there's like this big emotional, there's, there's a really nice emotional arc in all of your stories. Um, and it definitely is tied to um, kind of the horror. Like I'm just thinking about uh, in hotel, I think it's issue two where they, they go to the lake and like, they think it's the the greatest thing ever. And really it's not. And like, I, I really enjoyed that. And uh, I was just wondering if that's stuff that you're doing intentionally, or is it just a byproduct of you being a fan of the genre? Well, my opinion, I think that like emotional investment is important and, any genre really i think like you know where like comedy is funnier if like you like the characters and you relate to what they're, they're going through like you know an action movie like is more exciting if like you know the characters are people you like and you can root for um horror's the same thing where like um if like you know it's like you and there's been any number of disposable slasher movies where like the killers, the only like interesting figures, a bunch of bland teenagers that are like pulling their tops off, and, like you know they have no personalities and just there to get stabbed. And like you'll watch it and you'll laugh maybe, but you don't really care. Um, and like Halloween, amongst the many other things that that does right, why Halloween was so much better than like all these imitators was um, you like Laurie Strode and her friends, like the you know they have chemistry. You're invested in them. They're talking about oh we're going to we're going to do this at prom. We're going to do all that, and you, you know like the, all these things. We're going to have all these dreams going forward that are never going to happen because like Michael Myers is coming to kill us, um, and like you know or like Scream, like you know like that like has a bunch of likable characters that you care about. Horror is scarier when you like you care about the characters than they have like a human dimension to them. I think Stephen King does this really well too. Where like Stephen King always has this thing where he has the monster or the scary thing in the distance coming steadily closer, intercut with here's all these people in their human dramas that we find relatable. Um and you know, the two are about to clash. You know, I think that that always is something I like to strive for where like there's a human dimension to the story. Whether it's even if it's something just as simple as, as is often the case in hotel, this character's a scumbag and like he's utterly loathsome and he's like really hateable. And I just want him to see him get punished in an appropriate way. Like, you know, even that is like an emotional investment. Like where um I think that if you're wanting a deeper investment, like, you know, you, you have to like expect people to care. If you th- if you don't care and you're thinking, oh, these people are just guys to get like chopped up or turned into goo you know then like you know um like people aren't going to care because you're telling me they don't need to care so i think like you know as a writer like i want to um make people care about my characters and funny enough i was actually like in one of my in one of my writer friends i was talking to and they were reading this was like they were reading scripts at the time because like, they submit scripts to each other and um, i was in this early scripts for mountainhead and they were like, that's obviously a strong character dimension to it. And they'd said that, like, me taking a break from horror 
and going to write Depender, which was like my like very off tangent, like you know, gentle sports rom com, <laughs> you know, like which totally against everything else that I've done. And like they like said that like right, going away and writing that, which is very character focused and very affectionate towards its characters. I brought a lot of that into my horror and it made the horror feel like scarier because like, you know, there was a warmth to the characters and you were encouraged to care about the characters. So then when bad things happened to them, it was more like shocking and upsetting. So yeah, I definitely think a strong character dimension is important. And when I think of my favourite horrors as a reader or a viewer, they're all ones that have characters that you care about. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I just, as someone who's a writer and I write in horror, like it's just, really awesome just kind of hear your perspective on it so if you had like one advice to give someone who's writing or creating in the horror genre what would it be um that you see a lot of people do kind of incorrectly or or that it bugs you when someone does something like this um it's quite quite difficult because like um i'm not really sure if i could say much that i see that's wrong per se i do think that this isn't necessarily a problem with like the creators themselves just how sometimes they're characterized or sometimes i'll see a comic that's not a horror comic it's like an action comic or an adventure comic but because it has like a vampire in it or like you know a werewolf that gets classified as a horror (laughs) you know and like horror isn't about like you know surface dressing or trappings horrors about like ideas horrors about the emotion that generates and like um so I would say, like, you know, if you're wanting to do something that's, like, scary. Oh, actually, here's, here's what I'll say about that. I think that if you're wanting to do something that's scary and it's going to scare readers, you have to be willing to write something that's scary to you. If you're writing, okay, if you're thinking, like, you know, oh, I'm going to do a horror comic and it's going to be, like, you know, this werewolf where a chainsaw shows up and he's, like, you know, cutting up zombies and it's, you know, and because I've got zombies and chainsaws, we all a horror story. And you're sitting writing, like, da, 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 da. Um, and you're not scared at all, you're just writing, like, you know, it's kind of insulting to think that you'd expect other people to be afraid of something like that you're not like freaked out by. So I think you should be trying to push yourself and trying to like, write things that make you uncomfortable and don't pull your punches. If you're writing something and you're feeling a bit creeped out about what you're writing and you're thinking, oh, I don't know if I should do that, that's a bit like you know unpleasant. That's probably when you're going in the right direction because like you're, you know, you're tapping into that zone of like, this is what's unsettling me. That's what makes me uncomfortable. And then it's going to feel more genuine and you're more likely to evoke the same reactions in your readers than by just kind of playing on a surface level. Yeah. I, I love that you said that, uh, you know, I know when I, whenever I'm writing, like there's, when I start like feeling uncomfortable and like, all right, like, I don't know if I should say that. I usually use it as my compass. Like, okay, I should probably see, see why I don't want to, why, why I don't want to do that. So I I have a question just like, since we're kind of talking about mind frame and, and, and that, like, what was it like kind of starting out your writing career to where you are now? You obviously have gone a long way. Like, did you have any mental hurdles you had to go through or anything? Like, I know, like, a lot of people I've, I've talked to talked about um, imposter syndrome or just, you know, feeling like they um, maybe couldn't make it. Like what kind of just mental hurdles did you have to go through as you're going through your career? I think that you go through mental hurdles or you go through, you know, like you go through that feeling of like, you know, Oh, I don't know what I'm doing here. Like, you know, I don't have any worth. I don't like, you know, I think I should be giving up. And I felt that every time, you know, I've, been sitting at a convention and like you know I've tried to pitch my comic and someone's like walked past you know <laughs> I've, felt, I've felt that feeling every time 
Um, I've submitted a pitch to a publisher and it's been rejected or I've not had a reply back from an editor. Um, I felt that probably this morning. <laughs> you, know, you, you know, you feel that all the time. Like, you know, being a writer is just like a constant, like, you know, like constantly battling these feelings of like, you know, if I dedicated like 12 years of my life to doing anything else, I'd, you know, like with the same level of dedication that I have, like writing comics, I could probably, like, you know, like be making a fortune in like some, like, you know, company or an executive or something, you know, but no, like I decided to devote all that energy and all that, like, university education to, like, you know, like, you know, writing comics, you know, which sometimes it doesn't have all that much money in it. Um, but, like, you know, it's just easy to kind of think, like, you know, what have I done with my life, you know, but um, I think that, um, or you think, you know, like, put all this work in you'll see other people like you know that maybe got their break sooner than you or started sooner than you and like they are like you know so they seem to be leapfrogging you like you know and progressing faster and you're thinking oh does that mean I've had my shot and I'm like I'm not like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna break out um or I'm not gonna have like that opportunity to kind of progress and like that becomes like you know a kind of scary demoralizing thing and I'm sure I'm not alone in this there's so many projects that I've like put so much of myself into that just nobody's ever going to see because like they never got picked up by a publisher or wasn't able to make them. And I like to say if a story, the story of a writer's life is told in the work that they pub they produce. Every writer you see their their book is like missing like full chapters, like pages that are just missing because these books were never made. Um, and that's always a demoralizing process. But if you're thinking about how do you get out of this funk, how do you like um with when you're feeling down about like, oh, it's all worthwhile, like, you know, am I wasting my time? Like I just try like and look back and see, well, what have I done? Like where am I now or what have I done now that like, you know, I wouldn't have done if I'd given up like a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago. Um, like and I think like, you know, now like all the conventions I've got to go to, like, you know, they you know the fact that I've had produced all these books that I'm proud of. Like I look back at my bookshelf back there and I have like oh, it's like half a shelf of like my, my trades, you know, like books that mine like I've got a library of work, you know, and I've got more stuff underway. Like, you know, I've got like, you know, I'm I'm talking to editors about you know that I never would have thought were accessible in the past. But now like I'm talking about talking with them about doing projects about you know getting stuff out like you know there's like lots of potential like and I'm and I look back like, you know I know like you know that I don't necessarily sound arrogant like you know but like there's other creators who look at me and go like you know oh like you know oh I wish I had like you know this you know like the level of success that he has like as much as I look at other creators and go like you know I wish I had the level of success like, you know that they have and I'm sure like you know Scott Snyder or whatever probably is looking at somebody else and like I wish I had the level of success that Frank Miller has you know <laughs> I mean, you know, like, you know I'm sure like you know it's an, a never-ending process where like as a creator you're never going to be happy you're always like you know be thinking you've not done enough and you need to do more and maybe like when you when you sit back and go I'm satisfied I've done enough that's when you give up so <laughs> That, that's a, that is yeah that is just so awesome to hear like just you know i i know like i'm sure every like you said every writer has gone through this this idea that where the self-doubt creeps in and you're always you could always see up right like you can like it's really yeah. easy to look up and look at like uh the guys that you admire and it's it's always yeah. it always feels good though when someone uh probably comes up to you in a convention after everyone has, has walked by probably feels really great when someone comes up and is like, hey, man, I, I love your work, right? Like, that's, like, yeah. why you do it. Yeah, it's because especially, like, you know, um, 
it's because I know I've, I've been on the other side of that table. I'm still on the other side of that table. Like, you know, like when I like when I'm when I'm taking a break from like you know selling at shows, I'll walk around and see if I can find like I don't know Jason Aaron or Jeff Lemire and go like and fanboy out over them. Like, you know, like, <laughs> but, you know so I know like what it's like to be on the other side of that table, which is why like you know I always try and like you know make sure I'm always like open and friendly and give people the time of day i'm not a naturally sociable person i'm quite like shy i mean i'm the kind of person that like you know like sit by myself like, you know like a party you know like trying to find a quiet spot like, you know but like if i'm at a show like i always try and make sure like, i come talk i give people the time of day and talk to people because i think there's nothing worse than like meeting somebody who's what you're a fan of and like they give you the cold shoulder so like i always try to make sure like to be encouraging in that kind of mindset but yeah no i definitely think like we need to look for every kind of um chance we can to kind of like see value in ourselves because like you say writers like i think are kind of inclined towards being like self-effacing or thinking that we don't do it comic writers especially actually i think like you know there's a real culture on twitter and social media of like characterizing like comic writers as like the scum of the earth pretty much like you know and we do it it's not just like other members of the creators it's not like, not just like artists like writers themselves of like you know we are just parasites in the back of the other creative team like we don't have any actual value or talent it's everyone else that has the talent and like you know i think we need to stop doing that to ourselves like you know what I mean? we need to like no we have worth too and like you know we do have like you know something to say and you know like we are like an artist in our field as well yeah i speaking of like self-worth on a team i i i forget where i i I was reading about Mountainhead or, or, or something, and correct me if I'm wrong. Was that one of the first times an artist reached out to you to work with you, Ryan? Yeah, um, that was a case of like um, Ryan. Lee, I've been a fan of Ryan's for quite some time before that. Like you know, I'd seen his work through a couple. Of he's a perfect. He, I, I'm sorry, he's a perfect fit for that book too. Like it's yeah, just like, like a super match. Yeah, so I want to see like him do everything. Like Ryan Lee's like a lovely guy and a super talented artist. Uh, but yeah, like, so I was a big fan of Ryan's. I'd known him, but I'd never met him in person, but I'd known him for a few years just, like, from group chats and some mutual friends, and his style was so great. It reminded me a lot of, like, Ian Laurie's style in some ways. You know, obviously, it's his own quality to it, but that kind of, like, strange, offbeat. Um, and so I was sort of thinking I'd like to work with him. Um, but then, like, when I met him for the first time at C2E2 in 2016, he said to me, like, before I could send to him, he's like, you know, John, I, you know, I'd love to work with you. Can you come up with an idea for me to draw? Um, which I just love to hear. Like, I think it's great. Like, that was you know, like and it's an interesting challenge as well. But rather than me thinking up an idea and like, okay, how do I now I need to find an artist like that'll match this idea instead, like starting with the artist and thinking, can I come up with something tailored to them that they'll be great at? Hence Mountainhead and the rest is history. Yeah, so you so you tailored that for him. So you saw his his art, and you were like, "All right, what can I make for him?" Like, how did that process well, it's, go? It's kind of half and half. Like, I think I've talked a little bit about this elsewhere. Like, you know, but um, certain elements, like the whole character of Abraham, Abraham Stubbs, and his dad, and that whole backstory I talked about, about like you know the kid living off the grid, whose dad um, wasn't his real dad. That was a story I've had in my head for years and years and years. Um, like. I, like originally it was going to be part of like it was that idea was originally the gem of what was going to be like the completion of my lost child trilogy like you know with the standard um and then it was gone and then there was going to be abraham found it was going to be called um and but i had the whole setup of like you know um yes dad's not a real dad he gets sent up with his real family and yeah, I didn't have a story after that like i just had the character i didn't have a story so that kind of got put away in a box for like another time um and then like when i was thinking up 
something for Ryan to draw. I came up with Mountainhead, came up with the idea of like, you know, the mountains, the kind of was it as a setting and like, you know, splashes of red on white, like, you know, monsters in the mist, like, you know, par small town paranoia, um, kind of like drawn from like the thing and invasion of the body snatchers, evil dead, that whole type of vibe. So I had like a story and like, you know, plot trappings, but I didn't have characters. Um, so like you know and then I kind of took that old idea and melded it with this new thing for Ryan that all kind of became a full thing from there that's awesome that's one of my favourite that's one of my favourite type of things to make like you know comics that feel like you know kind of story mad libs where you've just kind of like taken different things and thrown them together and like you know what that makes no sense then the execution that pans out I I love doing stuff like that that's that's awesome so when you when you went to the characters like all right, I gotta I gotta deal with these characters how do you con- how do you normally construct the characters? Is there like a, a certain way you go about it, or you just kind of hit the page and let them do most of the work, and then you find them as you go? How's your approach to character development? Um, well, part of it is like you know, um, in terms of like a scripting of a character, like obviously I'll de- develop characters and think about their personalities and like you know what kind of person are they? Are they quiet? Are they loud? Are they kind of um, extrovert, introvert, or they a good guy, bad guy, all that stuff. But normally my first draft, like, you know, I'll write out a script and every character just sounds the same. They sound like me. <laughs> you usually sound like Scottish, even, even, they're, even when they're American. Um, and, like, you know, then like, once I've written the first draft and I've seen all these characters with the generic dialogue, I'll start thinking about, oh, what does this character sound like? Do they have, like, a vocal tech? Like, like I had, like, you know, I had this friend of mine, like, who kept on saying, like, mate, mate, I'm not going to lie to you, mate. Mate, and I always thought it was really funny, like, you know, say, or maybe, maybe I'll put that in, like, to a character, have them say that, like, you know, or, like, if this character's, like, not confident or, like, they're, you know, um, they're kind of hesitant, maybe they're always qualifying everything they say, like, with a think or maybe or um, and kind of, like, doubting themselves and kind of, like, maybe, so maybe have that reflected in the language um, or, like, um, little things like that or just, like, you know, maybe I'll have someone, like, have, like, a certain type of dialect, contractions, and then that's how you kind of, like, through a little building block you start to kind of get a sense of character's voice by doing that. Like, for example, another example I'll give, Mr. Dick, um, the, the main character's in sync, he's having a fox mask vigilante. Right from when, like, Arrow issue one, I knew that eventually in volume two it would be revealed that he's, like, you know, an Iraqi Kurd immigrant that's came to Glasgow. So, I've, I've done some work, like, teaching English as a foreign language, and, like, I'd worked with, like, you know, like, a Kurdish student, and I knew from, like, you know, writing, like, profiles of, like, the dialect and stuff that often, like, um, people, like, you know, who speak Kurdish will cut out, like, their, um, like, ah, and there, like, definite and indefinite articles from their sentence because there's no equivalent for that in their language. So rather than saying, like, you know, I'll go to the car, they'll say, I'll go to car, um, or instead of saying, like, you know, this is a banana, they'll say this is banana. Um, so like I put that into like his dialogue, like you know, he'll say, like, you know, um, I'm going to pick up shovel, like, you know, rather than I'm gonna pick up a shovel, like, you know. Um, and like and just little things like that, kind of that kind of becomes the character's voice, like, you know. And then also something that helps a lot is seeing the artist draw the character. Like, so there's been times when I've had like a minor supporting character who's just been a kind of background big bit part player, then like Alex Cormac, Kareen Laurie. I've drawn them and they've drawn them really interesting. They're full of personality with how they're drawn. I go, oh, that guy looks really interesting. And then I see what he looks like. I think he'd maybe do this. So this is what he, the kind of person he'd be. So I'll bring them back and I'll do more with them based on how they look. So it's a kind of like collaborative process as well. Yeah, that's awesome. Alex is, is an amazing artist. Like I'm... Oh, I'm, no. Alex Cormac is... You know the old saying where they say like, you know, 
you, you know, like I know you want my wizard to say, like, you know, an artist can be um, talented, they can be quick, they can, or they can be nice, you know, like people want all three, but they'll maybe do, like, but a lot of them only get one. Alex Cornack is all three, so lovely guys. Like, one of my, my favorite people in the world, like, I love, like, even when we're not making comments together, I was really good hitting him up and just chat and talk. Um, he's a lovely human being. Um, he's super talented as art. Like, you know, he's got to the point now where every time I come up with a comic, the default in my head when I think about what it looks like is I'll imagine it as drawn by Alex. So I've actually had to start consciously thinking, like, you know, okay, how now I need to think of somebody else for this book because I'm working Alex too hard. I'm giving him too much to do, you know. Um, so, like, you know, his style is just so clean cut and it's like his storytelling, like, you know, is so um, clear and crisp and like, I mean, you know, like, I think he's destined to do bigger things and, like, leave me in the dust behind, you know? Like, I'm terrified when that happens, but I've seen that he'll deserve it when it does happen. And also, like, he's super quick. Like, you know, he's regularly working in, like, you know, when he's on form, he can pump out, like, two or three books a month. Like, you know, he just, he's, like, a lightning machine, you know? Like, like he's one of the few guys where, like, you know, you've been working with him, and in the morning, you'll, go, you'll send you a page. Here's page one. And you go, that looks great. And then in the afternoon at lunchtime, here's page two. Like, you know, that's amazing. Then just in the evening before bedtime, here's page three. And like, my God, this guy, like, just goes boom, 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 boom. And like, and like, so yeah, like, he's just the ultimate artist that anyone would want to work with. But don't, but if you're here, just don't hire him because I need him. So don't, so don't work with him. <laughs> yeah, I I actually uh, I got a variant cover for him for my for my newest comic. So he's he's I, I was like lucky to work with him. He, he is absolutely awesome. I I um I discovered him on Sync, uh you know um and I've just you know I, I've got to meet him and, and, and like talk to him and stuff. And he's just a a, a really awesome guy. And he's he's perfect yeah, for Sync too. He's perfect. Oh yeah, for no, perfect fit for Sync. Um, like you know, like for, you know with um. Alex, like we were actually we worked together on Oxymoron, Marvelous Nightmare, which was our first extended project working together. Um, that was for Comic Stripe as well. Like it was Tyler's baby. Um, I had a lot of fun working on Oxymoron. It was a really fun story, but at the same time, I knew that was like you know Tyler's book. Like you know, it was um as much fun as I could have for that. It was Tyler's character. It's always going to be like you know Tyler's thing. Like you know, there's only so much you can do with that. And I thought like, I want to do something that's like just ours, like we can, you know, it's our, it's our, rather than having Tyler was a very generous host, they let us play in his sandbox. But I wanted to go, like, you know, make my own sandbox with Alex. So we fired a few ideas back and forth, like, let's come up with something that we want to work on together. And I had a few couple of things, you know, in the works. And then eventually came up with this thing, Sing. I thought he's going to be perfect for that. So I talked to him, and obviously he was on board. And like, actually, if you look, like, actually, people in the podcast won't see, won't see this, but if you can see on, like, on my wall, I have. This was like originally like Alex did this as a gift for me before we started working on Sync as a proof of concept through this picture of the clowns in the van um, and sent it to me and said, this is what I think this is going to look like. And I'm like, yeah, you're the guy for this book. Oh man, that is an awesome picture. And that is, that is the whole book like in a picture, like it's perfect. Like he captures the entire essence. Yeah. And, and the thing I think about Alex is as well, he's, he does violence and horror really well, but what he also does and what a lot of folk kind of don't always think about with Sync is, He's really funny as well. And I think he really manages to capture the absurdity in a scene. Because I think Sink's a really funny book too. Like, oh, not everyone agrees, but like, you know, I think it's like a funny book in a lot of ways. And like Alex captures that balance and that vibe perfect. Yeah. I uh the one story that I I just I can't get out of my head from Sink is the one, it's in volume one, where uh it's the lady, I think it's the lady who um is dead but doesn't know it. 
right? It's like, oh, um, no, it's like just the lady who disposes of dead bodies, and like, you know, and like, it's that she thinks, you know, or in the story, it seems like the, the body that she's disposing of isn't as dead as it first appears. Like, he sits in yes, the body yes. bag and he's not dead, but it turns out he actually is dead, and she just imagined that she's talking to him. Oh, that was like. That was one of the like it was creepy, it was well drawn, it was mister like mysterious. Uh, like out of all the stories, that one really sticks out in my head. Like kind of, I was just wondering where that fits for you and kind of where that kind of came about because I th- I thought it was like just really well done. There's a master class in that little um, in that anthology, like how how to tell a story. Well, funny story. That's actually the hardest to find issue of sync. I don't even have like both copies of that single issue. I think I have like the you know the B cover, the Ryan Lee cover, but I don't have like both just because I sold them because like the distributor or comment stripe had to get rid of all their copies like to people that needed them. Because issue one of Sync um obviously was pre-ordered and did pretty well. Then issue two kind of like went down lower as second issues normally do. But then like issue one ended up being like selling massively way above like expectations. So all the copies of issue two got gobbled up so no one could get it anywhere. Um, so yeah, that was a really hard to find issue, and it was a kind of interesting challenge. And I knew right that it was going to be a challenging issue because going back again, it's like this is like the theme, the first issue problem. Issue one of Sync has all the dramatic stuff that folk have came to like characterize as being like the fan favorite elements of the series. It has like you know horror, it has like big action scenes, it has Mister Dig, it has the clowns, it has Busman Bold, the killer bus driver, it has a lot of mythology stuff in it, and there's all these kind of like really visually dynamic stuff that fans really kind of like you know gravitated to watch and readers thought this is great. So we got all these readers on board for issue one. In issue two, you have this really quiet story with no Mr. Dig, no clowns, no van. Um, it's all like, you know, like just a kind of much more somber, serious, kind of low-key story. And that was gonna be a challenge. And I thought if folk are still on board after this, we don't lose them, then I know we've got we've not just got a good first issue, we've got a series of folk kind of stay on with us with this issue. And I actually like issue two more than issue one. I think it's like a better story than the first issue. Um and like yeah, like I think, like you know, people. I'm really glad that folk got what we were doing with it. Folk stuck with us. Like they didn't go, oh, doesn't, this doesn't get any clowns in it. I'm out. Like you know, well, I know that I can see what John's doing and what Alex is doing. This is a series that can do different types of tones, different types of story. Um, it can flex different muscles, and yeah, that was one of the really things I really enjoyed about it. That, like, you know, like it was the first real test of within the sync framework, can we tell different types of story and that have different kind of atmospheres and different vibes? And the answer was yes, we could. Yeah, I I absolutely love that. I love that story. It was, it was really well done. Um, you, you talked a little bit about um, kind of um, working with Ryan and kind of pitching him and also pitching um, uh, Alex on sync. What What's kind of your approaches to just pitching artists on a series and then pitching uh, a series to a publisher? Like, how does that kind of work for you? Are they two different things? It's been a kind of an evolving process. Um, it's kind of changed over the years. Like I remember the very first book I worked on, The Standards. Um, this was back in the days of like message boards and forums. Because help us. Um, Way back in the and, day. <laughs> yeah. And uh, this is terrible. I can't even remember the name of the place now. The, oh, what's the name of it? Oh, I've forgotten it. Um, it was a, it was a big mess. It was a big comics community. Um, it was a forum, and like everyone posted um their comics ads and like, looking for creative teams. 
that's terrible. I forgot that's how uh, how much it's been lost in history. I've forgotten the name of this place. <laughs> but I, I, you know, like when I had, I was looking for an artist to stand. I posted a parade, like looking for an artist for superhero comics. You know, paid work, and I got like hundreds of replies in my inbox. And like, cause I'm a masochist, I answered every single one of them. Or to the art, every single one replied individually to like, you know, this is the yes, no, like thank you for submitting. And eventually we found, after a couple of like hits and misses, we eventually settled on Jonathan Rector. That was because I was brand new to the industry. I knew nobody. I had no connections. Like, you know, so I had to do that. Then obviously when Emily was gone, like, you know, that was a bit different. Like, you know, I'd been in the scene for a couple of years. I knew some people. And like, and to be honest, like, that for the next couple of projects was different because like through working, whether it be just through being like in a convention and meeting artists socially or through doing anthologies and getting to like, you know, work with artists, like, you know, like I first worked with Alex in an anthology, like doing a short together, like getting a vibe for somebody. Um, then you start kind of getting an idea of like, rather than having to like stab in the dark, you can go, oh, well, I know this person, like, you know, I know they're talented, I know that like, I've seen enough of their stuff to know they'd be a good fit, I know them well enough to know that, like, you know, they might be approachable for this, let's talk. And then it becomes a whole process of, like, messaging the artist and saying, hi, I've got this idea, do you want to work on something together? It helps if, like, the artist has already said to you ahead of time, like, you know, I'd love to work with you on something someday, <laughs> you know, and then that makes it a bit easier. Um, like, so that's, like, the next step in the process. Then more recently with stuff like... Um, hotel i was assigned an artist and that was the first time ever that's ever happened to me where like you know um, i was essentially headhunted to like write something um so i sort of like submitted a written pitch and then when that was approved and the pitch for hotel was approved um awa and editorial team they found an artist they found the colorist they found a letter and like i was the least quote i was like the least established name on that team like dalibor's done like big like you know um Marvel stuff like Deadpool kills the Marvel Universe. Lee Lowridge is like a legendary colorist who's covered some of like my all time um favorite comics. Um, if I were to look in that shelf, like you know, pick out some of like my favorite books, like I, I'd see his name in the credits. Um, and Sal Cipriano again, he's a really tenured, like you know, familiar name as a letter, like you know. So I was like the kind of least proven commodity in that, so that was kind of weird for me. Like all these people who I would. Ne- never I felt brave enough to approach or had any end to approach and like an editorial team's approached them for me and actually without getting into any specifics so I don't think I'm allowed to yet but like I've been talking to another publisher like a big publisher about a project that's hopefully going to be coming out next year maybe um, and that's been like a process where like they've like you know they've said they want to go ahead with the project like you know they say like you know they want, let's do it let's start working on it and they basically said to me okay send me a wish list of any artist you'd want to work with on this book like you know whoever the name is like I'm not guaranteeing we'd get them just like to give me and I could give me a sense of the vibe you're wanting for this book so I'm sitting and I'm looking like like, like you know um and I, and I wouldn't say the name of the person like you know but like I was like I'm such a huge fan of like this person I've just read the new book that they have out like you know I think they're amazing and I wrote them like, you know obviously we won't get them but this is the kind of aesthetic I can imagine my book having, like, you know, this, this is, like, the kind of, like, reference point, this artist. And then, like, the editor replies back, goes, oh, yeah, I was just talking to that artist, like, a couple of weeks ago, and they said we want to work together on something, so I'll get in touch with them and see if they want to do it. And, like, you know, and, like, and, like for me, like, you know, that's insane to me, you know, like, that it's got to that point. And, obviously, 
Um, Jim, I feel like I've been talking forever, but to get back to the second part of your question, you know, um, like in terms of like pitching to publishers, um, again, that's changed because like back in the early days, um, like pitching was like you were putting in a lot of money, you were having to pay an artist to like put together pitch pages, you know, and you had to really have really full, fully formulated like an excerpt of the book, like five or five to eight or whatever pitch pages, your synopsis. I'm still terrible at writing pitches. Um, as you just write a script and it's write a pitch, but so you're, so you're putting together these full pitch packages and then like you're approaching editors, like you know, and Early on, um, when I was first starting the conventions, like I remember, I'm mortified now, but like, I remember, like literally, when it was like my first comic con I went to San Diego, um, in 2010, with a black and white self-published copy of the Standard Issue One, and I was just walking around tables, going, "Hi, this is my comic, the Standard." Like, you know, if you'd like, you know, and like folk politely took it, and I never heard from them again. Or again, I a funny story. I went to IDW's table, um, and like I'd said to them, like you know, uh, and I said, because one of the people around the table, I said, I was wondering if I could like maybe give one of the editors, like you know, a copy of my book, The Standards. They went one wee second, they went over and talked to the editor, and I saw the editor going. <laughs> so they came back and said, like you know, um, no, um, he doesn't want your, he doesn't want your book. So. <laughs> I was like, oh, thanks. And I, like, I wish I could go back and see, you know, you know, like in eight years, you know, they'll be public giving you your first, you know, like, you know, published credit and whatever. But um, was it, the, was yeah, it like, the same editor who published uh, you? No, no, editor is no longer with the company. You know, <laughs> oh, okay. so I guess I'm not, not, not fucking bad at anybody. But, um, but yeah, like, so, you know, so you go from this sort of thing, like, or like you'll go, then it became going to conventions and saying, I'm the guy that did this book, you know, and then like, they go, Oh, yeah, I've heard that book. And they'll give you like a card and say, Here's my card. So then the next step is you get these pitches and you'll send, like, you know, you have your, your editor contacts, you'll send the pitches out to editors, and then they just don't get back to you, never hear from them again. And I really knew I was progressing as a creator when editors started replying to me to reject me. Uh, <laughs> when, you know, like when, when someone replies back and says, oh, hi, John, thanks for getting in touch. No, we're not doing the book. Uh, you know, I'm like, oh, I, I just, that, for first I actually thought, oh, that's great. Like, they know I exist. You know, they actually feel like I'm, you know, worthy enough of their attention now to take the time to say no to me. And that must mean I'm getting somewhere. Um, and like, you know, and then like when I actually got to put people started accepting my pictures, that was mind-blowing. That was a big hurdle because for years I thought I'm never going to have a book, a picture accepted. So, when people started saying, yeah, we want to do this, that was great. And more recently, I've got to the point now where editors proactively reach out to me and like, oh, yeah, I can love your stuff. I'd love to work with you in something. Give us some pitches, give us some ideas. Um, and now, like, I kind of feel it's, I, I'm at a stage where it's actually easier to pitch now than it was before. Because before when you were pitching, it was a big expense, it was a big speculation. I still sometimes have to do that. But with other publishers and other editors, I'm only having to do like a word document and write like a written pitch and say, here's my idea um, and send it off to them. And it's easier to do rapid fire pitches and sometimes it's rapid fire rejections. But, you know, I feel like that then it becomes a bit easier to pitch because it's more informal rather than being like, I'm this unknown commodity who has to be super prepared and have to come up with a whole bunch of stuff. It's like this person knows me, they've seen my body of work, they've seen I can do stuff. So I have to do less up front to prove myself. I can just say, well, here's my idea. What do you think? Um, so it's a bit less pressure now um, and it's nice when you have a rapport with editors whether you're working with them yet or not it's nice to have a rapport enough that you're approachable and you know you can send them a message and you know you'll get a reply one way or the other and it's not just kind of like a wishing well 
Yeah, it's it's probably nice where you're just not sending a, a pitch off into the ether, hoping something. Yeah, no, you don't even know. So I, mean, like, I can I can deal with rejections. Like I'm like I've got plenty of practice, you know. But um, <laughs> I like so I can deal with rejection. Okay, that's fine. If you get a rejection, then you know we have to go next. The worst feeling is being ghosted though, and like you know, when like when you send something, you just never hear a reply. Fair enough. If it's like somebody that you're kind of like cold calling and reaching out to that's neither, you know, that's never asked for anything, you're sending a message, that's fair enough if you never get a reply. But it's worse if it's somebody who's like, oh yeah, reach out to me and send me a message, you know, or it's someone you've started to have a conversation with and they just then you just hear nothing. That really knocks your confidence, I think. Yeah, for sure. I know uh I mean every writer goes through that, right? Like you you're yeah. you're doing the whole pitch thing. Um and I think that's what kind of makes Kickstarter really cool, is that it allows you to kinda you know, make the books you want now without having uh, to go through that. One, uh, one question that like, what do you see as, uh, as like a writer yourself? Like you said, like now I feel like I'm progressing um, because uh, editors are reaching out to me, but like, where have you like noticed uh, a change in your writing or maybe a progression in your writing that you're some things that you're doing better now that you weren't doing better when you first started or like, where have you, like, how have you learned from, you know, from, from then till now? To be honest, the, the probably the thing that I've got better at is like having books on the shelf <laughs> because, like, you know, um, well, I think like you know we are. It's so much easier to get momentum when like you have other stuff out, like you know when you have no books, you only have stuff you're selling at a convention. Then it's harder to get people to notice you. If you have, if it's like you know you have like you know like when Sync came out, you know editors of other companies noticed that and said oh I'm willing to give this guy more of a chance now you know them and like I had like Mountainhead and Hotel out then other editors go on now he's got a few books out like you know so I think definitely like you know one it's a visibility thing like you know where it's like you know you're um, more present but also like you say it's like it's an experience thing where the more you get a chance to write and the more you, try, the more you get a chance to develop comics the more confident you get in doing it and the more firm sense of like you know a voice and like you know and like what works and what doesn't, it kind of becomes more intuitive. And especially the more you the more you work with the same artist, the more you get a sense of like, you know, what's gonna to play to their strengths, how can I pace this in a way that's gonna, you know, like sing. And like, you know, as death, so I definitely think the more you do it, like, you know, the better it gets. Yeah, that's awesome. So uh before we, we wrap up here, uh where can people kind of find you uh on social media or, or reach out to you and all that good stuff? Um, well, I've got a few hubs um you can find me on twitter at john lees 927 um you can i've got a weekly newsletter um where i share various essays and features and news about my upcoming releases and what have you that is um at www.deepender that's deep slash ender dot john lees comics.com you sign up to that and you'll get a free copy of Deep Ender, hence the name, <laughs> um, and a bunch of other comics. And then you'll get like a weekly update in your inbox. You can find me on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash John Lees, um, where that's where I post like original stories and like behind the scenes commentary in my books and a whole bunch of content. If you're a fan of my stuff and you know, want to support me, you can go there. Also, if you've been hearing about all these books and you think they're interesting, but you can't find them at your local comic shop, I have an online shop. Um, John Lee's comics.bigcartel.com. Um, and there you'll find you can buy my various trades and single issues and what have you. So check that out if you want to get some of my stuff. I think that's all the plugs I can think of for now. So yeah. <laughs> well, well, that's awesome. John, thank you so much for, for doing this, man, and talking with me today. I really appreciate it. 
Oh, thanks so much for bearing with my long rambles. <laughs> no, I, I loved it. it was, they were just really informative. Thank you just so much. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Rolly. So let me know when it goes up online and I'll <laughs> happy to see it around. Listen back to myself. Yeah, for sure. Uh...